Good morning, Boker Tov. So excited and wonderful to learn the Parsha together again in Parsha Perspectives for today, trying to extract contemporary inspiring lessons from our weekly Torah portion. I want to thank, as always, our generous sponsors of the Parsha Perspectives for the year, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should be Le'ilu Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. Thank you so much for your generosity. Parsha's Kiseite appears in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 1046, 1046. And the Parsha begins, as we're all familiar, when you go out to war against your enemy. And Hashem is going to deliver uh, the enemy into your hand. You're going to be triumphant. You're going to be victorious. And in victory, you will capture a captive. And you're going to see a very attractive woman. You'll be drawn to. You'll long for her. And you're going to take her for you as a wife. And then the Torah gives a prescription of exactly what to do when this happens. It's a fascinating section of the Torah because as the Chazal tells us, here the Torah speaks to not the best of humanity, not our highest yearning or reaching or longing. Here the Torah speaks to what is, so to say, the lowest common denominator. The Torah acknowledges the reality of who we are, our temptation, our drive, our desire. And the Torah makes, so to say, a concession to that, which is very interesting. It means that our Torah HaKadosha is not utopian literature. Our Torah HaKadosha deals with We are fallible and we are human and we are mere mortals. We make mistakes and we come up short. And the Torah, anticipating and recognizing and appreciating that, on the one hand, pushes us to strive and to have drive and ambition. And on the other hand, makes concessions. One of the concessions, for example, the Torah makes, we'll read about it in a couple weeks. What is this mitzvah? The mitzvah, the Ramban says, is the mitzvah of tshuva. Tshuva is one of the many things that the Torah describes God created even before He built the world. Even before the six days of creation, Hashem first introduced and instituted the concept, the capacity, the ability to do tshuva. Why was tshuva created before the world? Why not wait for man to stumble and fall and then... Tshuva will be the tool, the instrument, the vehicle to recover and return from it. Why invent or introduce tshuva even before man ever made a mistake? And the answer that's so powerful and empowering to me this time of year and the whole year long is that God did not create man to be perfect. There is no one in this world, asher lo who doesn't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And he built into the system that recognition, that acknowledgement, and he built into the system how we can rec- repair and return and recover. Tshuva means to return. It means to go back. It means to reset. It means to reboot. So here too, the beginning of our parsha, which is the story of the Yifas Torah, Lodibra Torah the Torah is speaking to not the world the way we wish it were, not people the way we wish they would be. The Torah is speaking to the reality of mortal, fallible man, man, generic man and woman, who are drawn to temptation, desire, distraction, who make mistakes, and give us the prescription and tell us what to do. Now, I want to share with you an insight of Revolba on this uh, opening of our Parsha, which, until I saw it, the question never occurred to me. But of course, the great Revolba, the great Mashkiach, doesn't need me to endorse his uh, insight, how brilliant it is. Ki la milchama. Why does it describe when you go out to war with your enemy? Just say, when you're at war when you're in war with your enemy and Hashem makes you triumphant and you capture a captive, why is the imagery say when you go out to war? This image of the word Yitziah, the notion of going out, of leaving, always has a connotation or association with something negative in a derogatory way. And I'll give you a few examples. Go to Bereshus Lamedalid, Pasuk Aleph. Bereshus chapter 34, verse 1. And what's the story there? Dina. Dina was bored. The only girl had no playmates. She wanted to go out, wanted to explore, wanted to have some girlfriends, wanted to see what was going on. 
to see what was happening. And we all know the story. Chamor is attracted, takes her captive. This is the beginning of the Me Too movement. Violates her. There is no consent. And of course, the two brothers stand up and fight and advocate and wipe out Chamor and Shechem in defense of their sister Dina. But how did this whole episode begin? And here the Torah is not chas blaming the victim. But the Torah tells us, Vatetzei. She went out. And Rashi there says, how is Dina identified? Vatetse Dina Bas Leah. Paraklamadala Pasagalf. Tetse Dina Bas Leah. Now Dina's the daughter of Leah. One second. Who else was Dina the daughter of? Not just Leah. Dina also had a father. And who was her father? Yaakov. Wonders Rashi, why does the Torah identify Dina specifically with Leah? What happened to Yaakov? Says Rashi, Velobas Yaakov, Ela Hashem Yitziasa Nikres Bas Leah, Sha'afi Yatzanis Haisa, Shanema Vatetse Leah Likraso. She's identified or associated with her mother because she shares a similar quality and trait. And what was that quality and trait? Vatetse. Leah acted indiscreetly. She went out, and Dina is described as the daughter of Leah because Vatetse Dina. She too went out. So here we see the first negative connotation, not chas v'shalom blaming the, dick, the victim. Dina was exclusively the victim, and that's why her brothers rise up on her behalf and defend her honor. Let's be clear. She is purely the victim. No one's blaming the victim. However, vatetse, this quality of always needing to go out and be out and intermingle and integrate and see what's happening. Curiosity killed the cat and curiosity killed many others. So here is the first association, a negative or derogatory association with the concept of going out. Next we have in Sefer Vayikra. Go to Vayikra, Perek, Chavdalad, Pasag Yud. Vayikra Chavdalad, Pasuk Yud. Pasuk tells us, Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelis v'hu ben Shmitzri b'sof b'nei Yisrael, Vayinatzu b'machana ben Yisraelis v'ish ha-Yisraeli. We have another story. We have another story of the son of a Jewish woman who went out. This is the Megadev, who went out and cursed God, the blasphemer, the Kitsoni personality, who previously had risen in defense of God and is such an extremist, now is going out to curse and to blaspheme God. And how does that begin, that episode? Vayetzei ben Isha Yisraelis u ben Ish Mitzri b'sof b'nei Yisrael. He went out, went out. Again, you see this notion of Yitzia, of going out, of exploring, of leaving, as being identified or associated with something negative or derogatory. He went out, where did he go out? Vayetzei Rashi here says, Mehechan Yatza. Why don't we just describe that he got up, and he took his keyboard, he took his smartphone on social media, online or offline, he blasphemed God, he cursed out God. Why do you have to describe Vayetze? He went out to curse God. You can curse God comfortably from home now that we have the internet. Why do you have to go anywhere? So Rashi says, Mehechan Yatza, where did he go? He left his world, he left his sanity, he left his, his, his mental uh, balance and well-being. He went out. So this is the second example. First we have Dina, Vayetze Dina. Now we have Vayetze Ben Isha Yisraelis. And finally, in the case of Korach, Korach and his Eda. It says the Pasuk, when it comes to Korach, we're in now Bamidbar. Bamidbar Perak Tezayin, Pasuk Chavzayin. Bamidbar 1627. Pasuk describes, And they got up from the dwelling of Korach, Dosam Aviram, from all around. They went out standing at the entrance of their tents, they, their wives, their children, and their infants. And here Rashi again says, What do you mean, Yatsu? They went out. Says Rashi, Yatsu, Brazenly, boldly, arrogantly, they went out. They threw caution to the wind and they went out. They went out in order to curse, to blaspheme. They went in order to rebel, or to rebel. So you see this notion of Yitziah with three negative connotations, with Dina, the Megadev in Vayikra, and with Dosan Va'aviram here in Korach. Why the connection? Why the connection? And here, Ravob is really answering a question, a question that should bother all of us. At the end of last week's parasha, we had a list of the individuals who not only exempt from war, but from, or, or the individuals that we send home from war. And who are they? 
If you got married but haven't enjoyed your Shana Rishona, you haven't really enjoyed your home, your new home. If you planted, uh, built a home but didn't yet take residence in it. And if you planted a vineyard and you did not yet enjoy it. These three individuals are sent home from war. But there's a fourth category. We talked about it last week. The individual who has Averus Biado, Rach Levav, the softer faint of heart, who carries Averus Biado. Why? Someone who did something so seemingly insignificant, like spoke between the armed tefillin and the head tefillin, has to go home. What does that implier suggest about the people who are going out to war? There's a certain level of righteousness. There's a certain level of nobility. There's a certain level of, of tzidkus. These are good people. These are quality people. These are fine people. These are upstanding people. These are moral and ethical people. Because we've already weeded out the weak, the morally and ethically weak. We've already weeded out the individual who have Avera Shabiyado, the individual who make mistakes, who have indiscretion, who have poor judgment, and who hold on to them, who carry them with them. We told you, stay home. So who came with us out to war? The ones who lead that battle out to war are the ones who are morally upright, who are ethically steadfast. So says Revolb, if that's the case, how do you have the whole beginning of our parsha? What do you mean? When you go out and you see the attractive woman, and we know how many American soldiers, we know how many soldiers of every country, of every army, in the context of war, when they are acting uh, with brutality and violence, can lose their moral compass, can be drawn to that which doesn't belong to them, right? And the Torah here accommodates that. And... But who are we talking about? You're talking about the righteous soldier. So why is that righteous soldier drawn to the strange, beautiful woman, taking her captive, shaving her head? He must have her, even if she's an Ashish Ish, even if she is married and belongs to someone else. Who are we talking about? How did the righteous soldier of last week, because we weeded out the unrighteous, become the soldier of the Afas Toar of the beginning of this week? Says Revolva, the answer is all in that word, Tetzay. Ki Seitzay la milchama. It's in that word, Tetzay. Why is in that word, Tetzay? Says Revolva, what Chazal are telling us is that when you go out, when you go out, Rashi here says, why are we accommodating the soldier? But Mechanes Medaber, talking about a voluntary war, not an obligatory war. And the reason that we accommodate the soldier, if the Torah wouldn't let you, give you parameters and criteria, give you a protocol for how to marry her permissibly, then you'd marry her in a forbidden way. And then she'll become hated, and then you'll have a ben soda or a mora, and it will spiral, it will spiral downward. Says Bet the Revolba, you know where everything went wrong? When you bring an attitude and a mentality in life of Kiseitzei. When a person wants to go out, to go out of your boundary and to go out of your border and to go out of what should be your spiritual comfort zone. You know, that doesn't mean that we can't be creative and inquisitive. This world is magnificent and Hashem invites us, at least when we're past the pandemic, He invites us to explore it and to conquer it and to get to know it. Go see the national parks, go study science, go and, uh, and pursue and learn and, and experience. It's a magnificent world but do it within certain spiritual boundaries. Do it within certain spiritual and halachic parameters. And stay at home within that world of our moral compass. Stay at home, because when you want to go out, when you want to be able to taste or experience or have what everyone else has, you want to see how the world lives, you're just curious, you just want to give a look, you just want to take a taste, that say that mentality of leaving our boundaries and leaving our spiritual and Torah borders, just giving a look and just getting a taste and just being a spectator and just being an observer, that say that pull and that desire, it could take the righteous soldier of the end of last week's parsha and turn it into the soldier of the Yifas Torah at the beginning of, at the beginning of this week's parsha. That's what's going on. We have an exception. The exception is Yaakov Avinu. We have an entire parsha named Vayetze. Parsha's Vayetze. Perak Chavches, Pasag Yud, in Bracious. Parsha's Vayetze. Vayetze Yaakov mi Be'er Sheva, Vayela Charana. Yaakov went out. He went out and he headed towards Charan. And here the Torah tells us this Vayetze had the opposite impact. It says Rashi, this Vayetze is. 
The parsha could have begun by telling us Yaakov headed to Haran. What did he plug into the GPS? Haran. Why did he have to tell us where he left from? Why is that important or significant? It's telling us that when a tzaddik, when a person leaves a place, it makes an impression. When a righteous person lived somewhere, they lifted everyone up. Their behavior and their attitude and their image and their mere presence has an indelible impression. It lifts people up. And when Yaakov left, it made a Roshim. The Tzaddik is the Hod. Tzaddik is the glory and the splendor. But when the tzaddik leaves. So here we have the Vayetze, where Yaakov, who was that tzaddik, Yaakov, who knew how to stay home within the spiritual boundaries and comfort zone, when he left Davka, is when it had that impression, that negative impression on others. So before a person says Revolba, before a person departs from a regular routine, you have to take a moment to contemplate if what you plan to do or your place you want to visit is going to have a negative or a positive effect on you. When a person's going to leave your comfort zone, just try this, just go there, just watch this, just read this, just think this, just experience this. You're going to leave your comfort zone. You're going to Vayetze, you're going to Kiseitze. When you're going to Tetze, when you're going to have a Yitzia, when you're going to go out of what you feel comfortable and safe and what is home, then you need to give extra thought and forethought to anticipate what the consequence will be. And that's why the Torah relates to most instances of Yitzhiya in a derogatory fashion. Only with Yaakov Avinu is the Yitzhiya one that is negative in the other direction, that it has the negative impact on the people that it leaves behind. So anyway, I share that with you because the question that Revolba is seeking to answer is a question that never occurred to me. What happened to the righteous soldier of last week's Parsha? So much so that at the beginning of this week's Parsha, he's now desiring someone that's off limits to him that the Torah has to come up with this accommodation called the laws of, of Yafas Tawar. It's very bizarre, unless you understand that important critical word, Tetzay, how careful we need to be when it comes to our notion of Yitzhiyah. Many of them, With whom is this war? And who's the Oyvecha? Our alter ego. The Oyvecha is this alter ego. The Oyvecha is, again, that, that voice in ourselves that when we go out, says, just taste, just experiment, just a look, just a taste, just see, just try. And it leads us astray if we're not careful. The great uh, British poet Robert Browning once said, when the fight begins within himself, a man's worth something. When the fight begins within himself, a man is worth something. Which is, That's what the Orchayim and many of the Rebbes point out. With whom is this fight? It's a fight within yourself. And that's when you become worth something. When you coast through life, when you're complacent and apathetic, when you just do whatever you want, when you explore whatever you want, and then you just redraw the boundaries. Instead of admitting that you violated a boundary, you just redraw the boundaries with every new desire and want you have when you're not engaged with an internal conversation, an internal battle, an internal, an internal struggle, then what are you worth? This kiseitze la milchama aloivecha is the milchama with ourselves. To be more patient, to be more caring, to be more humble, to learn more Torah, to daven with more kavana, to be more generous, to spend more time doing chesed, whatever the area we've identified that we need to work on, to have more amunah, to feel Hashem's presence over our shoulder, whatever area that we need to work on, when we're willing to fight with ourselves, is when we are worth something. And that struggle, that milchama alaivecha, that struggle with ourselves, that result, that consequence is the sweetest. I posted a video today. We've been sending out a daily inspiration from the shul, a minute of inspiration for Elul, rotation of the rabbis. I sent one out today with a beautiful insight that we know Shana Tovo Masuka, everybody loves dipping the apple in the honey. We're counting down a short time from now, dipping the apple in the honey and wishing one another Shana Tovo Masuka. Many dip chala in the honey all the way through Sukkot. I have a friend who dips chala in the honey all year round. He wants it to be sweet. At least it's a school for the dentist, so his children have to keep coming, all the apple and that honey. Shana Tova Masuka. Now, whenever Dvash, whenever the Torah in Tanakh uses the term Dvash honey, the Torah is talking about Dvash Tmarim, date honey. When the Torah, when Tanakh, we use the term Dvash honey, we're talking about date honey. And yet here, the Minag is Dvash um, Dvorim. We're using bee honey. We dip the apple, not in the date honey, we dip the apple in the bee honey. Why? Why? So I forgot where I first saw this. I think Ramelech Biederman quoted it. The answer is, because the honey flows from the date. 
the date doesn't have to undergo any pressure. The date doesn't have to undergo any, any uh, struggle. The honey just flows from the date naturally, and that's how one retrieves date honey. But when it comes to the bee, the bee undergoes struggle in order to create that honey. And to retrieve, to access that honey from the bee, you have to be willing to endure pain. You have to be willing to apply effort. You have to be invested. The reason we use bee honey on Rosh Hashanah, because for it to be a Shana Tova um Mesuka, no pain, no gain. The more you put in, the sweeter it is. Lefum tsara agra, according to the effort, is the reward. So kiseitze lamilchama aloi vecha. We're in this battle with our alter ego. We're with a battle with the voice that wants to sabotage. We're in a battle to be the best version of ourselves. And when we struggle is when our life becomes worth something. That's the sweetest, the sweetest that it is. The next section the Torah has is the story of the Ben Sora Umora. Lohayavalo Nivra never, never was, never will be. And the Gemara Chazal already wonder, if it never happened and it never will happen, then why is the Torah taking up precious real estate by taking us these intricate and detailed laws? To which the Torah responds, because you will extrapolate, you'll learn, you'll study, and you'll get reward. Now the simple understanding is that you'll apply yourself and study this section, and by learning Torah, the most noble pursuit, the best zach, then you'll uh, get reward in the world to come. However, many, including Rav Shamshan, Falhersh, and others, say no. Drosh, understand what went wrong with the Ben Sora Umora. Umekabaschar, where? Where will you get reward? In this world. Why? Because if you want to learn about parenting, you want to learn about education, you want to learn about inspiring others, then closely examine the story of the Ben Sora Umora. We've done this in the past, and we're not going to do it again right now. But there are many lessons to be gleaned and learned from the parents' inconsistency. Do they speak with one voice or with two different voices? Are they giving one message and one model? Or is there conflict within the home so the confused child just decides to, to for themselves what will be? There's a lot to talk about, about the lessons, the mechabaschar that you can extract. But I want to share with you a different insight from Rav Druk. Rav Druk and his Eshtamid asked the following question. It's not his. Excuse me, it's a very famous question. But I loved his answer. I love his answer. Rav Druk says the following. We know that when it comes to this Ben Sora Umora, this child at the time, we're talking about a child within three months of their bar mitzvah, who has the same voice as the parents, all of these real details in order to qualify, which is why it never happened and never will happen. The criteria are so rigid and so narrow that it's impossible to ever happen. And one of them is that this child has not yet done anything. So Rashi here says, Ben Sora Umora, Neherag al Shem Sofo. We're giving a capital punishment. We are giving the death penalty to a child who's done nothing wrong. Done nothing wrong. So why are you killing the child? I'll shame Sofo. Because we have a crystal ball. And we look at this child and we look into his future and we see that the future of this child does not end well. And this future of this child, this child is going to act so wayward, so rebelliously, that this child is going to do things worthy of the death penalty. So instead of waiting for the child to actually perform the crime, we eliminate the child before the crime. Al shame Sofo. We fast forward to the end, we know what he's going to do wrong, and therefore we give him the death penalty before he ever can. Higia Torah Lesov Daito. Torah knows what's going to happen. Sof Shemach Let this child die innocent rather than die guilty. It's a merit for the child. We're doing a favor for the child. Instead of fast-forwarding with our crystal ball and waiting for the crime and a victim, we actually cut off before there's a victim, and it's a merit for the child that the child died innocent. Now, if this bothers you, it bothers many others too. Why? Especially for the following reason. We find the opposite in the Torah. Breshus Chafalaf. When Yishmael is expelled from the house of Avraham, and he's sent out to the desert, and there is no water, the Pasuk says, It says, Don't worry. A heavenly voice came out and proclaimed to Hagar, Don't worry about your child, because your child is being evaluated and judged. How? So, yes, Yishmael one day will become the greatest agitator ever of the Jewish people. Okay, we're making peace one by one. There'll be a day that we celebrate peace with entire Yishmael. Yishmael will be the greater, greatest agitator and will, will terrorize the Jewish people. But right now, Hagar, don't worry. Why? Ba'asher husham. Because Yishmael today is innocent, pure, zis, edel, a gutzkite. Yishmael of Ba'asher husham is good to go, so you have nothing to worry about. 
So Rashi there quotes Chazal Basherusham, Lufi Masim Shuosach Shavunidon, Ulufi Mashu Osilasos, Lufishayum Malachi Ashars Bekatrim Omen Ribonashalom, Misha Osid Zara Lahamis Banecha Betzama Atamala Lachaber. The Malachim were protesting God and said, What, you're going to give a canteen? You're going to make a water delivery? Zephyr Hills is showing up to Yishmael right now in the desert to save his life? Don't you know who Yishmael is going to be the progenitor of? Don't you know whom he will father? He will become the greatest agitator. They'll terrorize, murder, seek to exterminate, to drive into the sea the Jewish people and the beloved Israel. So we'll say the angels to God, why are you bailing him out? Why are you giving him water? Let him fail. To which Hashem responds, no, 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 no. I'm just God. And in my system of justice, basher husham. I look and evaluate based on who you are today. And I don't care if your trajectory is in the direction of bad news. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd. And ultimately, this path, we've seen it. We've seen this story before. We know how it ends. You're going to turn to a life of drugs and crime and this and that and the other. I don't care. But who you are right now and how you're living right now, Basher Husham, says God. So wonders Rav Druk and so many others. What's going on over here? Which way is it? Do we say, Nidon Hashem Sofo? The Ben Soro Mora gets the death penalty because we know how the story ends. So let's make it a victimless crime. Let's cut him off before he can create a victim. We judge someone based on the outcome that will be. Or do we say, We look at the here and now. We look at the here and now. Not only does Yishmael benefit from Hashem's approach of looking at the here and now, we are the beneficiaries of that approach. And we will be on Rosh Hashanah. Because the Gemara Rosh Hashanah Dav Tezayin tells us, Amar I've spoken about this one statement in the Gemara countless times because I think it's so important and so misunderstood. When we come before Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, what are we being judged for? What are we being judged for? Waking a child in the middle of the night and ask them, for what is our judgment on Rosh Hashanah? They'll say, were you a good boy or good girl in the past year? Rosh Hashanah, we come before God and our whole last year plays before Hashem in the movie and the Beisden Shamal is up there and they look and they say, ooh, that's not good. That's a problem. Oh, that was nice. You did okay. And we've got these scales and which way are they going to tip and all the images that we, since we're little children, have about Yom Adin, the Day of Judgment, Rosh Hashanah, Sarasim Elul, this entire period of the year. Ask anyone in the middle of the night and they'll tell you, what is Rosh Hashanah? What are you being judged for? The past year. However, you were told a lie. That is absolutely incorrect. It's 100% not true. We don't have time to expand upon it right now, but I'll just tell you this. The Gemara says, Amar B'Yitzchak, you're only being judged for that moment. So when you're in shul, when you're in shul or outside in a tent or davening in the safety of your own living room, whatever you're able to do this Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah when we stand before God and God is looking and evaluating us, it is not about the past year. You know what He's evaluating us? How we are that day, that hour, that minute, that moment. So you say, what are you talking about? I, I thought it was all about the times that I forgot to make a bracha before I ate, or I slept in, or I didn't dive in with kavana, or I didn't hold the door, or I didn't say please and thank you. I wasn't a good boy, or I wasn't a good girl. I thought it was about the past. The answer is, God only cares about the past in how it informs my present. But I can't be judged for the past because I can't change the past. The only thing that I'm in control over, the only thing that I can change is the present. So if I hold on to the past, if I have wonderful memories of the past, if I'm nostalgic about the past, if I am destined to repeat the past, then the past is part of my present and for therefore I'm guilty for it. But if in my present I've disassociated with the past, if in my present I've disavowed the past, if in my present I'm redefining who I am, that's all God cares about. Every moment I have an opportunity to redefine who I am and ain't done in Sa'adam Elafi Masav Shlosha, all God cares about is that moment. And where did Rabbi Yitzchak learn that from? Where did he learn that from, that all that matters is that moment? Okay, I'll give you one piece of evidence. I want to get back to so much to talk about in the parsha, But one piece of evidence. Gemara and Kedushin says that an individual, picture the scene. The individual works out of McDonald's, walks out of McDonald's. They didn't stop to use the bathroom or get a Diet Coke. They walk out and they're wiping the crumbs off their face from the delicious double cheeseburger, triple Whopper they just finished. The individual had Basar Bechalov, he ate cheeseburger, while you gossiped, while you cheated on your income taxes, while you think of every Avera in the world. And then they turn to a young woman they fall in love with and they say at the same moment, while they're still wiping the crumbs off their face of the double Whopper cheeseburger, You are hereby married to me on condition that I am a tzaddik, I am righteous. So I don't know if you asked me if I was the rabbi, I'd say, 
100% they're not married. There's no, there's no validity to that marriage because the chassan attached a condition that he didn't meet. You're hereby married to me on condition that I'm a tzaddik. You're a tzaddik. The cheeseburger is still on your face. The stain is still on your shirt of the whopper. What are you talking about? You're a tzaddik. Says the Gemara Mikudeshis, you're married. Why? Shema hirher b'tshuva. Because in the split millisecond between finishing the whopper and saying, you're hereby married to me on condition I'm a tzaddik, maybe the individual decided, I'm a tzaddik. And yes, it is that simple. Isn't that empowering? Isn't that enriching? Aren't I using up all my yam nuram drushas right now? Yes. Isn't that incredibly empowering? All it takes is deciding in this moment, oh, the, the person who did that yesterday, or did that an hour ago, or did that a minute ago, that's not me. I don't want to be that person anymore. I've hereby declared I want to redefine myself. I hereby declare I'm a new person in this moment. And God says, then we're good. We're good. Good to go. Because I'm not judging you or holding you accountable for the last year. I'm holding you accountable for this moment. And the last year matters in how it informs this moment. And where did Rabbi Yitzchak learn that from? That you're only judged for that moment. He quotes a Pasuk. How do we know that? Because God did not hold Yishmael accountable for whom he would become. But rather, he interacted with Yishmael based on who he was in that, in that moment, in that moment. Sort of Druk asked, I don't understand. Which is it? Nidon Hashem Sofo? Do we fast forward? Do we look in the crystal ball? Do we hold you accountable based on the trajectory that you're on and what you're ultimately going to do as he does with the Ben Sora Umora? Or is it like Yishmael and all of us on Rosh Hashanah, Basher Husham, that all that matters is that, is that moment? And listen to what he answers. First he quotes a chizkuni, and he says the difference was Yishmael at that moment was pure, was completely innocent. It's only that we have an eye to the future, we know what would be. But the Bensaura Umora has already begun to slip, has already shown indication or signs of who he was going to become, and that's why the difference. That's the answer of the chizkuni. Rav Druk gives a different answer. He gives a different answer. He quotes Rabbeinu Yonah. This is so beautiful because it's the intersection between the Parsha and El, getting ready for Yom Nuraim. Listen to Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah in Shari Tshuva writes, Kasha Yishma Musar HaChachamim HaMochichim Yakshe V'Yishma V'Yichna V'Yachzu B'Tshuva V'Yikamba B'Libo Kol Divrei HaTochachos Shul Yigra Dover Midivrayim Do you know what the prerequisite is to doing Tshuva? To listening and learning and being open to the fact that you might need to change. The individual who doesn't know how to listen, if you're closed off and closed down and shut down, and no one can ever get through to you, there's no article, there's no speech, there's no WhatsApp group, there's no video, there's no moment, there's no family member, there's no friend, there's no Rebbe, there's no one who can ever get through to you and suggest anything other than that you're perfect. If anyone says anything other than that you're perfect, they offer constructive criticism, feedback, even delivered in the most beautiful, delicious way, you can never hear it, Says Rabbeinu Yonah, you'll never change. The prerequisite to change is the ability to listen, is the ability to be open. The Ramcha writes this also in Mesil Susharim. The Ramcha writes, he says, the lates, the lates, the uh, cynic, the sarcastic individual, it's like they're holding a shield that is smeared with oil. And when an arrow hits the shield, the oil, it makes the arrow slide right off. Nothing can penetrate. We all know people like that so cynical, so sarcastic, nothing ever penetrates. Their spouse, their children can call out, cry out, try to get through to them, confide in them, their most heartfelt, authentic feeling. But the sarcastic cynic, it just slides right off. Nothing, nothing ever penetrates. Says Rabbeinu Yoni, you want to grow, you want to improve, you want to repair, you want to become a better version of yourself. The prerequisite is the ability to listen, the ability to listen. And if you can't listen, then you'll never grow. It's what Shlomo HaMelech says in Mishlei. You have to have the ability to listen. One of the 48 ways Torah is acquired in Pirkei Avos is you have to have the ability to listen. Says Rav Druk, listen to this Gishmak Vort, listen to this amazing insight. Says Rav Druk, you know what the difference is between the Ben Saura Umora, who's Nidem Mashim Sofo, 
It's a fait accompli that we already give him the capital punishment. And Yishmal, who we say, Bashir Hashem, let's look at him right now. Look at the section in our parasha, Kisetze, of the Ben Sora Umora. What does it say about him? Over and over and over again. You know what he's missing? The ability to listen. Over and over. What is the word that's repeated over and over again in the section of the Batsoro Mora? The ability to listen and to learn and to grow. This Ben Sora Umora is shut down. First the parents come and say, First the parents come and complain, he doesn't listen. Doesn't listen. Nothing penetrates. No openness. Doesn't listen. So then the Zakanim, the elders, the rabbis, the inspirational, motivational speakers, they try to inspire him. He doesn't listen. Not to the meaningful minute, and not to this podcast, and not to that WhatsApp group, and not to Charlie, and not to Rabbi Krohn, and not to anybody. And then what happens? The Zakanim. He doesn't listen to them. And so what do we have to do? Someone who's closed off and doesn't listen, that's the individual we know will never change. A person who listens, we have hope. The person who listens, there's promise. The person who listens, there's possibility. But if you're shut down and shut off and you can't and don't ever listen, and that's why how does the Ben Sora Umura section end? With a mandate and a charge to the Jewish people. V'chol yishma Yisrael, yishmu v'ira'u. You everyone see what happened? Everyone see what we did to this Ben Soro Mora? You see that we had to apply capital punishment and we had to give him the death penalty? Now go do what? Listen and learn. Listening. It is the key to personal growth, personal achievement. It's the key to be able to break through. What an insight of Rav Druk. Next, Perchav Bez Pasagalov. You cannot see the ox of your brother or sheep or goat that is cast off. And you're going to turn away. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to look away. Instead, the mitzvah of hashavas aveda. The mitzvah of hashavas aveda. Aveda. You have to return the lost object to the person. You have to return the lost object to the person. Hashavas aveda. We've spoken about this many times in the past. It's it's what defines a good Jew versus a good American. See, to be a good American, you have to just not rape, steal, pillage, murder. You're not actually good. You're just not bad. But the Torah says, no, no, we actually want to mold and shape and cultivate not just not bad people, we want to create good people. A good person doesn't walk by a lost object and not try to give it back to its rightful owner. You have to return the, right, the object to the rightful owner. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Dafayin Gimel, takes this pasuk a step further. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, not just do you have to return a lost object to its rightful owner, if you have the ability to return and restore someone's health, then that too. A doctor who heals is doing hashavas aveda when someone loses their health and you can return it. Therapeutically, you heal, you help, you support, you give someone back their well-being, their mental, spiritual, emotional health, that's hashavas aveda. If the Torah applauds someone who gives back an object, all the more so, says the Gemara in Sanhedrin, how valuable the person who gives back not the object, but the person who gives back a person's very life, a person's very health. And the Orachayim HaKadosh takes it yet even a step further. And the Orachayim says the following, You know what the highest uh, nickname that the Torah can give someone is? The more righteous you are, the more of a brother. A holy brother. Holy brothers. If you care about fellow Jews and you're a righteous person in your own right, you're a holy brother. So says the Rechaim, you know what's going on over here? It's not talking about an object and it's not talking about restoring someone's health. It's talking about giving someone back their neshama. Don't see the animal of your brother. Who is your brother? Hashem. He's your holy brother. Hashem, the one you're devoted and dedicated and love. Don't see the animal of your brother. And who's the animal? The animal is the individual living with no Torah. The individual gives into the desire, their appetite, their urge, who's living like an animal with an animal instinct and an animal impulse, an animal compulsion. 
The individuals living like an animal don't see them wandering and turn away. Hashev teshivem la'achicha. Bring them back la'achicha to your brother who is Hashem. Says the Arachayim, this is the Torah's mandate for Kiruv, for caring about a fellow Jew. So someone bageled you online at the supermarket. They said, oi, because they wanted you to know that they're Jewish. Somebody said, good Shabbos, or said, hey, is when is Rosh Hashanah this year? Because they wanted you to know they're Jewish. You can't, don't close your eyes, don't walk away, don't neglect them. Hashev teshivem la'achicha. Bring them back to Hashem. Invite them for a meal. Encourage, inspire. Put them on an email list. Send them a link to be able to learn. Says the Orachayim HaKadosh, a third, even yet higher level. So the Pasuk itself is talking about that in order to be a good Jew, a good person, it's not enough to not be bad. To be good, you have to actually do good. If you see someone lost something, bring it back. Give it back to them. Says the Gemara a step further. Give someone back their health. Says the Orachayim even a step further. Give someone back their neshama. Hakem takim imo. We're going to skip that Pasuk. Make. Next, the Torah introduces us to the concept of Ma'ake, the obligation of building a fence. We've studied this in the past also. We've seen many different beautiful interpretations of what does it mean, Why is it a new house? The obligation to put a fence or a railing is not only on a house, it's on a staircase. In fact, the Gemara learns from here, you're not allowed to keep anything dangerous. You can't raise a pit bull in your house. You can't have anything dangerous in your house because that's a violation of You're supposed to make a safe space for people. So why is it only on a bias chadash, a new house, they have to put up the fence? It should be, what, if you, if you buy a used house and it doesn't have a fence? And it's not just true about the roof. It's true if you're from the Midwest, the roof. It's true about the balcony, it's true about the staircase, it's true about the porch. It's true about any elevated area or any dangerous area. You have to make a fence around your gag. We spoke about this all in the past, but I want to share a new insight with you this week from the Heilig Aslanim Rebbe, the great Rishon Noach Berzovsky's Chosay Yagen Aleinu. And he asked this question, Why is it specifically with a new house? And why Why specifically for your roof? It's true about a pit. It's true about anything that could damage or harm. So he explains, based on the base of Rom's Chosay Yagen Aleinu on the Pesach, Yazav Rosh Adarko, a wicked person needs to abandon their path. It's not enough to just make a tweak. You have to altogether change your direction, your trajectory. Listen to his pshat. When a Jew sees, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm hanging out with the wrong people. I'm living the wrong life. This is not the kind of family I want, the kind of Shabbos table I want, the kind of children I want, the kind of davening I want. This is not who I want to be. So what happens? What happens? You're going to tweak, you're going to change, you're going to adjust. That's the small, specific thing. No. doesn't talking about a physical house. It means when you want to rebuild your life, your home, who you are. And what's the eighth of Asisa Make a fence around it. The fence is Yira Shemaim. Makehu Gedarim Siyagim. A fence means, this goes back to the beginning of the word at the beginning of the Pasha that we said from Revolba Kisetse. It means that if you want to make changes in your life, then you need to put fences in your life. You need to draw boundaries in your life. It can't be all things, all times, all people. Just do it. Whatever makes you happy, obey your thirst. If you want to have a meaningful, purposeful life, you need to have a fence. You need to have healthy boundaries and borders. You need to be able to know right from wrong and live within that space, not say not to go out from it. So says the Slam Rebbe, that is the message. You're ready to turn over a new leaf. You want to become a new person. You want to make a change in your life. Then make a fence. Make a boundary. Decide who you want to become and what the best of yourself looks like and then put a fence around it to protect you and to keep you on that path, to keep you in that direction, to keep you going along those lines and to keep you true to that promise of who you have pledged to become and who you say you want to be. Perich of Gimel Pasaches, moving right along. Next Perich. Such beautiful mitzvahs here, one by one. We don't have time to obviously explore them all. Beginning of the next Perich, page 1052, the Yard Scroll Stone Chamesh. Lo yikach. Hold on. I have the wrong place. Chav Beis. No, Chav Gimel Ches. Sorry, Chav Gimel Ches. Page 1054. 1054. 
לא ססאב אדומי כי אחיך הוא. לא ססאב מצרי כי גר הייסא בארצו. בנם השאיבה דולם דור שלישי יבוא לוקר בשם. Don't reject someone from Edom. Why? Because he's your brother. And don't reject an Egyptian. Why? Because you are a stranger in his land. Don't be harsh to the Egyptian. Because yeah, we do have a bad history with the Egyptian. But you also had a long and illustrious history, history in his land. When there's a famine and you need to run and there was nowhere else to go, you found a place. You found a place. The Gemara learns from here a very powerful message about how far Hakara Satov has to go, how far recognition of good has to go. It's very powerful. I'll tell it to you from an insight from my great uncle, Olav HaShalom Zechon Levracha, my great uncle, Rav Yisrael Nolman, my uncle Lou, Lou Nolman, Rav Yisrael Nolman, who was an educator in, for a very long time in America and ultimately lived in Israel. He wrote a couple of svarim, very interesting svarim, where he took pitgamim, he took Yiddish expressions and tried to show how what became popular Yiddish expressions actually originated in Chazal. That these Yiddish expressions were not just folk expressions of a Jewish culture, but actually embedded within them were attitudes of our rabbis, were brilliant wisdom of Chazal. So I'm not going to try to say this in Yiddish because I'll butcher it. But in one of his entries on this, he's talking about Hakara Satov. And he says the following. He says the following. He begins by saying, Zaydi yeshli matmon bishvilcha. One of his grandchildren said, Zaydi, I, I have a wonderful treasure for you. I found a pitgam biyiddish, and you're going to enjoy them very much. And he said, what does this mean? What's really going on in this pitgam? What's really going on in this Yiddish expression? So here's the Yiddish expression. You ready? I'll try. Don't judge me. Chovos darfman batzelen. I don't know how to pronounce it. Ben adam tzarech l'shalim chovosav. A person has to pay off their obligations. You have to pay off your debts. However, tovos darfman shuldek bleiben. Latovos trichen lihishar chayavim. When it comes to a person has to pay off their debts, but when it comes to the good things people did for you, you have to remain indebted. That's the Yiddish expression. The Yiddish expression is always try to pay your debts, except for the good things people did for you, always try to remain indebted. So that's what Uncle Lou's grandson, I don't know which one it was, Yisrael Nomad's grandson, brought him this Yiddish expression, and he said, now I'm going to try to find what is really going on here. So he said, here's his suggestion. Here's his suggestion about what it means. The following. On the one in the Gemarik Suva, Staff Pevav says, Prias Balchov Mitzvah. We have a Torah obligation to pay off our debt. You borrowed money, you borrowed an object, you have an obligation to return, to restore, to make the other person whole. That's the Gemara says, Prias Balchov is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to pay back. So, what does the second half of this Yiddish expression mean? Tovos Darfman Shuldik Bleiben. What does it mean? But when it comes to the tovos, the good things, you should remain indebted. What does that mean? So he suggests based on Rav Yerucham. Rav Yerucham, the great mashkiach of the Mir, in his Sefer Das Torah, Parshas Kisetze, says the following. Our Pasuk, it says you're not allowed to hate, you're not allowed to take revenge, you're not allowed to carry a grudge against Egyptians. Why? Kiger ha'isa be'artso. You are a stranger in their land. And Rashi here says the following. What do you mean? I can't carry a grudge? They threw my ancestors in the river. They drowned babies. They were murderous, genocidal maniacs. And I have to be nice to them these generations later. Why? Says Rashi. Because before they did all that, they gave us a place to stay when we were hungry and we were tired and we were running. They gave us, they were hospitable. So we remember and we hold on to their hospitality to the point that you're not allowed to bear a grudge or take revenge even after all that they did. It's actually a very interesting insight. On Behind the Bima last week, we talked about the story of this Israeli hockey player who signed to play for the Auschwitz team and the controversy that created of many people who were very upset and saw the individual, saw this Israeli hockey player as a traitor. How could you play for Team Auschwitz? Auschwitz is synonymous with genocide, extermination, and murder of Jews. So here, the problem not necessarily saying they're equal or applying it. But here the Torah says, you can't bear a grudge against the Egyptian. Because true, the Egyptian is synonymous with slavery and servitude and oppression and persecution. But don't also forget the centuries of living there and living well and Jewish culture and Jewish renaissance 
and the hospitality that they provided and that they offered. So says Rav Yisrael Noman, says my great uncle, Zichron Lavracha, maybe that's what this expression means. He says it's very interesting. Can you pay off a debt? If someone did a toiva for you, if someone lent you $100, not only can you, but you have to pay off that debt by giving them the $100 back. But if somebody did a generous gesture, if somebody did a kind deed for you, can you ever pay it back? And the answer is no. A person should maintain that debt and continue to feel indebted. And that's why the expression is not that you pay off the good. It's not tashlum tov. Don't pay off the tov the good for someone did. What's the attitude or the approach or the quality we're supposed to have? Be a makir tov. Recognize the good and remain indebted to it for the rest of your life. Don't seek to pay it off and think you're done and move on. Maintain and carry that debt with you forever and as you go forward. And maybe, says Rabbi Yisrael Noman, that's the deeper meaning of this expression, of this Yiddish pitgam, which means your debts you should pay off, but the tovos, the good things people did for you, you should remain indebted. I'm sure this is a much sweeter Dvar Torah if someone could correctly pronounce the Yiddish. So I apologize to you for destroying the Yiddish. But what a beautiful insight of Rav Yerucham. And it's a difficult application to think that you can't bear the grudge against the Egyptian, to think somehow you're meant to continue to hold on and focus with some sense of an appreciation of the good that they did. How is that possible? How could that be? Rav Desla writes in Mechtav Meliyahu, if that's how you feel, have to feel to the Egyptian, who even though the good is well overshadowed by the bad, imagine the Akaras Atov, the gratitude that we're meant and obligated to continue to carry and feel towards those whose good uh, was not overshadowed, who only did good, who only did good towards us. This is also a vort, by the way, of I think the Ksav Sofer, when Leah names him Yehuda. Why is he called Yehuda? He's called, Yehuda means, I'm grateful that I have Yehuda. And what was different? When the Gemara says, Leah was the first one to ever say, Thank you. What do you mean? Adam never said thank you? Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? What are you talking about? Leah is the first one to say thank you? Noach built a, built a Mizbeach. What do you mean Leah is the first to say thank you? The answer is others had said thank you, but they said a thank you that paid off a debt. You did something nice. I said thank you. Now we're even Stephen. Leah was the first one who said, I'm going to continue to say thank you. Every time she called Yehuda's name, she was saying thank you again and again and again and again. And that was the message. She never stopped saying thank you. Hakara satov, not tashlam hatov. Not paying off the good, but recognizing the good and remaining and retaining that feeling and that sense of being indebted. Okay, let's keep going towards the end of the parsha. Per chafei pasuk yud gimel. Chafei yud gimel. Lo yelacha bikischa evan va'evan gedolo ketana. This is the Torah's mandate or obligation towards being honest in business. Honest in business having integrity in our lives, in our interpersonal relationships, in our business conduct. Having integrity. Don't have in your pocket two stones, one large and one small. Don't be duplicitous, and don't be a fraud, and don't be a fake, and don't be corrupt. And don't have in your house two, two, two measures, two scales, one large and one small. You have to have a perfect and honest weight and measure so that you live a long life, so you achieve longevity. We throw around that word to'eva to describe lifestyles that the Torah rejects. But you know, the word to'eva, abomination, also applies to people who are dishonest. When someone's dishonest or corrupt in business, when they cut corners, cheat, when they misreport on their income taxes, they, are, they should be shunned and shamed for the community as much as any other abomination. It's an abomination to conduct oneself in that way, to behave in that manner. Revolba here has a very interesting insight. Revolba notes in the Pasuk, what do you mean that you shouldn't have in your pocket, you shouldn't have in your home? What if you have it there, but you don't use it? Rashi here explains the juxtaposition of the commandment. What do we have here? The prohibition of having Dishonest weights and measures is right next to what is the very last paragraph in the parsha? Zachar. Parsha Zachar. Before Purim. Can anyone remember still before Purim? It was like another lifetime. Before Purim. Can anyone still remember that? Feels like not this year. It feels like 400 years ago. So we read Parsha Zachar. Zachar says, 
remember what Amalek did. We have that obligation to remember. If you didn't hear Parsha Zachor, you pay attention to this week's Torah reading and you can fulfill that obligation of Parsha's Zachor. So Rashi here says, what's the juxtaposition? Why do we have the story of Zachor, of Amalek, right next to the Torah's mandate to have only honest weights and measures? So Rashi tells us the reason is, if you're dishonest with your weights and measures, then fear an attack from your enemy because Amalek's coming for you. What makes you vulnerable to Amalek? What precipitates Amalek's attack against you if you're dishonest in business? What does one thing have to do with the other? Why specifically dishonesty in business? Why not say Amalek will attack you if you don't keep Shabbos and you don't keep kosher and you don't keep Yom Kippur? If you speak Lashon Hara, why specifically is it dishonest weights and weights and measures? So Revolva quotes Rabbeinu Yonah in Mishlei, on Mishlei, who says that even if a person doesn't use those dishonest weights and measures, but simply keeps them in their house, that alone is an abomination to Hashem. Just to own them, just to keep them, the Gra adds, even if you weigh the merchandise with a faulty measure, and then you compensate for the difference, so you never cheat out the other person, still, you are an abomination to Hashem. Why? Because using these deceitful weights causes a person to be distanced from Hashem. Why is that? And how does that work? Listen to this insight. Listen to this insight of the Nitziv. The Nitziv says, you know how that works? And you know why that happens? And you know why this is juxtaposed in our parasha? Says the Nitziv, you see, when it comes to stealing from somebody, why does A steal from B? Because agreed. A wanted what B had. A wants B's wallet, pocketbook, laptop, flat screen. A wants what B has. Or A is worried that they won't have anything. A is worried they won't have food to eat or a roof over their head. So out of fear or out of greed, A steals from B. When you have dishonest weights and measures in a premeditated way, if you've institutionalized your deceit and your theft, then it's not just out of a moment of weakness or out of a moment of fear, it's actually out of a moment of heresy. And why is it out of a moment of heresy? Because you don't believe God will provide. And you don't believe God gives you what you need and what you deserve. A person steals on occasion out of greed. You swindle with dishonest weights and measures, it's more than greed. You've introduced corruption. Corruption. Even if all you do is own them and don't use them, you are leaving something corrupt. It's a lack of faith. So if you have dishonest in business, Rav Schechter points this out all the time, if you cheat on your taxes, you're not just violating Ben Adam Lachavero, you're stealing from your fellow man when you cheat on your taxes. Why? Because your fellow man has to pay more taxes because somebody still has to pay for the sewers and the mail. Oh, let's not talk about the mail. Someone still has to pay for the uh, trash to be picked up and for the uh, traffic lights to be installed. So if, if your neighbor doesn't pay because they cheat on their taxes, you'll have to pay more. They've stolen literally from you. However, it's not just stealing from fellow man, it's stealing from God. It's stealing from God. How? Because you don't believe he will provide. It's an act of heresy, of kfira, and that's the connection to a malik. A Malik live a life of Mikra. A Malik are all about chance and happenstance. A Malik are all about randomness. A Malik are all about living life where you say there is no God. So a Malik do it in the negative. A Malik say there is no God. We're victims of chance and, and happenstance and randomness. There's nothing meaningful. There's no order to the universe. mikra. Everything is just Mikra. It's all just chance. Well, if you are corrupt, that you cheat and steal, you've institutionalized corruption, you don't believe that God will provide what you need and deserve, then you're no better than a Amalek. Then you also have eliminated God from the equation. Then you're also living without God in your life, says the Natsiv, and that is the connection between the two. That is why these two parshios are juxtaposed one to the other. We have to live with a sense of there's a Hashem in our life. I'll end by telling you an amazing of a beautiful Berdichever. He says the following. Say it now or save it for another time. You know what? We're out of time. I'm going to save it for another time. What an incredible Kiddushas Levi. I got to keep you wanting more. Make sure you come back next week. So we saw a smattering of some of the laws of the Parsha. There is so much more. Honest weights and measures, Toeva, it's an abomination. Here the ORB, Arvada Kashras. We check not only the ingredients at our stores, but we calibrate the scales a couple times a year. We go in and make sure that if they sell you half a pound of coleslaw, that it's taka half a pound. Because we're as worried not only about the ingredients, we're as worried about the righteousness of the scales, because that's a toeva. It's an abomination to God when it's corrupt, 
making sure that they're honest weights and scales. So join me tomorrow morning, 8.15 for Mesil Sasharim, 10 minutes, 8.45 for Living with Amuna. Tomorrow night, behind the Bima, we're going behind the Bima with Bidi Deutsch, who is fighting to be able to participate in the Olympics. This amazing um, Torah-observant woman who runs faster than anyone you know and who qualifies for the Olympics, but it's being held on Saturday. So hear more about that tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Until then, everyone, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Even if you're not, please consider it. Have a fantastic day.